This podcast is made possible by Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company. Welcome to Go Bronx Podcast, episode 13. I'm Olga Luce. We talked a little bit about the Van Cortlandt House Museum in our last episode on historic houses of the Bronx. Within that episode, we made mention of some of those 18th century houses being built by African and Native American slaves. Today, we are recording from one of those houses. I'm joined by Laura Carpenter Myers, the director of the Van Cortlandt House. Thank you for joining us, Laura, and for letting us set up our makeshift pod studio here. We've got microphones and wires and laptop connected to a mixer in the basement of the oldest house in the borough. Technology, meet history. I'm happy to be part of this podcast, Olga. Welcome. So we're going to talk about the history of this house, which was built in 1748. But also, you're engaged in a very fascinating initiative called the Enslaved Peoples Project, right? Yes, I am. And I'm not working on this alone. With the Van Cortlandt Park Alliance, the Kingsbridge Historical Society, and even students from Manhattan College, we have been working on this Enslaved Peoples Project for about the last two to three years now. And we've also established a community coalition that is helping to guide us as we continue to do our research. And it's really been a very rewarding, very important project to do. Well, in order to talk about the history of this house, we need to go back to the very beginning, the middle of the 17th century or the middle of the 1600s. The story of the Van Cortland family in America begins in the year 1638 when Olaf Stevenzi Van Cortland arrived in New Amsterdam from Holland. Olaf was an employee and officer of the Dutch West India Company. He was also considered one of the wealthiest men in New York at the time, having earned his riches as a merchant, brewer, moneylender, and through international shipping. Near the end of the 17th century, Jacobus, the youngest of Olaf's seven children, made his first purchase of land of what would eventually become a large and profitable wheat plantation. While Jacobus may not have lived on his plantation, he did have enslaved people, both Africans and Native Americans, working here, growing wheat, making improvements to the land, building barns, two mills, and a dam that turned Tibbetts Brook into a lake. Tibbetsbrook, that still runs to what is Yonkers today, right? That is correct. Okay, just a quick warning to our listeners. Laura is going to read from the original records written in the language of those days. For accuracy's sake, we've chosen to keep the original language, and this sometimes includes words and phrases that are no longer acceptable. We've chosen to retain those words because, well, they're so powerful, and the last thing we want to do is sugarcoat this history. So when we read from the 1698 census of Fordham and adjacent places, which is the first census record we've been able to locate for Van Cortlandt House, here is the list of enslaved people owned by Jacobus living and working on his land. Hedder, Tony, Marcy, Hester, Anton the Negger, and Diana, his wife, and three children, Ben, Abraham, and Jacob. Other than this list of names, there really is no further information in the census to tell us the specific work these enslaved people did on the plantation um, or really anything more about their lives. Well, in addition to the enslaved people listed in the census as residents on the Van Cortlandt Plantation in Kingsbridge, Jacobus Van Cortlandt also owned Andrew Saxton, who may have been a worker on the Yonkers Plantation or at his brewery in New Amsterdam. But Saxton ran away from Jacobus in August of 1733. 
and a month later, having not returned on his own, Jacobus decided to place an ad and reward in the local paper. Yep. It was in the September 17, 1733 issue of the New York Gazette. And it read, Ran away the 18th of August, 1733, from Jacobus Van Cortland of the city of New York, a Negro manslave named Andrew Saxton. A tall, lusty fellow, is very black, walks slooping and somewhat lameish with his left leg. The thumb of his left hand is somewhat still by a wound he has had in his hand formerly. The shirts he had with him and on his back are marked with a cross on the left breast. He professeth himself to be a Roman Catholic, speaks very good English, is a carpenter and cooper by trade, and has with him a broad axe, a two-foot rule, and a hollow howl. He had on a pair of linen or Osnaburg breeches and an old cloth coat, but tis uncertain what other clothes he has with him. Whoever takes up and secures the said Negro man and gives notice thereof to his said master, so as he may be had again, shall have 40 shillings if taken within 10 miles of the city of New York, and then three pounds if further as a reward, and all reasonable charges paid by Jacobus Van Cortland. The details in this advertisement and the thousands of others published for runaway slaves really gives us one of the best resources for research into the lives of enslaved people. So much of their daily lives and experiences were never recorded, but were passed down through an oral tradition or through stories. So having these written advertisements is really a treasure trove of information. I'm disturbed also by the way he offers a reward, as if Saxton was some lost puppy or something. Well, regardless of whether Saxton was an enslaved worker on the Yonkers plantation or at the brewery, his specific trade as cooper or barrel maker was crucial for the storage and transportation of the products being manufactured by Saxton's fellow workers. So he was essential for Jacobus to continue his commerce. We don't really know if he was returned either on his own or after being captured, right? Nope, we don't. Six years later, in 1739, Jacobus Van Cortland died in Bergen County, New Jersey. In his will, he lists the following enslaved person. Pompey, identified as my Indian man slave, Piero, John, and Frank, all three identified as my Negro man slaves, Hester and Hannah, identified as Negro women, also unnamed, uncounted children, identified as the existing children of Hannah, together with all their children that already are or hereafter shall be born of the body of the said Negro woman Hester, except such of the said children as I may think fit in my lifetime to dispose of by deed of gift or otherwise. So he was actually leaving these people as property, part of his estate. Hmm. Amazing. Well, Jacobus had only one son, Frederick Van Cortland, who inherited the entire plantation upon his father's death. He and his family, wife Frances, sons James, Frederick, and Augustus, and daughters, Anne and Eve, were documented as living on the plantation by 1748, when the house was actually built. Is that right? That is correct. In his will, Frederick notes, quote, I am now about finishing a large stone dwelling house on the plantation upon which I now live, unquote. This house, present-day Van Cortland House, was not finished before Frederick died in early 1749, so it passed to his eldest son, James, with a provision that his wife, Frances, may live in the house for the rest of her life or until she remarries. Hint, she never remarried. 
His younger sisters, Anne, 14, and Eva, 13, were also granted the right to live in the house until they married. Also listed in Frederick's will are enslaved people. One or more he may have inherited from his father. The enslaved people listed in Frederick's will are Mary and Hester, identified as Negro girl slaves. Lavelli as Negro man, the boatman. Piero, identified as the miller. Hester, wife of Piero. Little Peter, son of Piero and Hester. Caesar, identified as Indian man. Kate, Caesar's wife. Hannah, identified as Negro girl, he left to his daughter Anne. Sarrow, identified as a Negro girl, left to his daughter Eve. Klaus, identified as a Negro boy, left to his son Augustus. Little Frank, identified as a Negro boy, left to his son Frederick. My 21st century self is still astounded how we as humans are capable of treating other humans as possessions. I know it's part of our history, and we should know the truth, lest we repeat it. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll learn more about the enslaved people of Van Cortlandt House. The world has changed a lot in the last year, and more than ever, you need health insurance you can rely on. Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield is the whole health company, and that means they are dedicated to improving the health and well-being of everyone in the Bronx and throughout the New York service area. They've been supporting the health of Bronxites for 86 years, providing you access to high-quality, affordable care. To learn how you can make a whole health connection, go to empireblue.com. Sigourney Weaver here to tell you about the New York Botanical Garden, 250 acres, 1 million plants, and you. Now open in the Bronx. Plan your visit at nybg.org. City Bike is expanding to the Bronx. Membership is only $179 annually. New Yorkers who live in NYCHA or receive SNAP benefits can take advantage of the discounted City Bike membership for only $5 a month. Visit citybikenyc.com pricing to get started. We're back. So James Van Cortland not only inherited an unfinished house in 1749, but he also inherited the successful provisioning plantation established by his grandfather, Jacobus. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, if you'll indulge me for just a minute, I'd love to be able to clarify a little bit about plantations and what that term meant in the 18th century. Not that I want to simplify or gloss over the institution of slavery, because if you're a person considered property, it doesn't really matter how well you're treated, you're still chattel. I do feel it is important, however, to point out that a plantation in colonial area New York was very different than what we in today's times consider a plantation. The Van Cortlandt's plantation was not the huge cotton or rice growing plantations common in the South in the 19th century. What movies like Gone with the Wind or Sounder or Alex Haley's Roots miniseries brings to mind. Northern plantations tended to be much smaller in size with fewer acres under cultivation. The enslaved people working and living on the Van Cortlandt plantation would have not only grown wheat on approximately 100 acres, they also cut down trees to be made into building lumber and firewood and processed the raw timber and wheat in the grist grinding mill and saw cutting mills. Although it is impossible for there not to have been any enslaved people living and working on the plantation at the time of his death, James's will was written hastily on March 23, 1781, just eight days before his death. Before inheriting his family's plantation, 
Augustus Van Cortland lived in Lower Manhattan. He had studied law under his uncle John Chambers and was admitted to the bar. Augustus also held the important position of common clerk of the city of New York from 1751 to 1783, a period of 32 years. It was in this capacity that Augustus, in the summer of 1775, received a request from the New York Provincial Congress to safeguard the public records of the city of New York due to the alarming state of public affairs. As an employee of the British government, Augustus must have felt conflicted about this request because the Continentals are asking him to hide important documents, and he's working for the British government. Augustus first hid the records in a cellar under the garden of his city residence near 11 Broadway, but later transferred the records to the family's plantation then owned by his brother James. To make this potentially risky move less suspicious, Augustus made the trip to his brother James's Lower Yonkers plantation with the excuse of paying a visit to his elderly mother. Frances Van Cortland, she who must be obeyed, had called him to come visit and he heeded her call. The records were hidden in the burial vault established under the terms of their father Frederick Van Cortland's will. The city records remained on the plantation until 1784 when Augustus was ordered to turn them over to the newly appointed clerk of the city and county of New York. That burial vault is located near the top of what is today referred to as Cemetery Hill. Not so much because it's a cemetery, but because it's a killer climb. Trust me, I've hiked it. In addition to Klaus, the Negro boy, inherited from his father Frederick, Augustus was likely to have inherited the enslaved people living and working on the plantation from his brother James. Frederick had also inherited two enslaved people from his aunt Anne Van Cortland Chambers in 1774. They were a Negro wench, Dinah, and Robbins, we assume to be a man. During the Revolutionary War, the house and plantation were considered neutral ground, with George Washington and British and Hessian officers using it as temporary headquarters. In November of 1783, Washington returned to Van Cortland House, where he stayed the night. The next day, he started his march into New York for the formal handover from the British as troops, loyalist refugees, and emancipated enslaved people left Manhattan. Hmm. Well, when we come back, we will talk about the enslaved people and their lives in the Van Cortland House. Get it, baby, get it! And now, for a little segment we like to call, Yo Angel! Yo Olga! So, our coat of arms, which appears on the Bronx flag, has the words, Necedit Malice, in a banner under the eagle. What does that mean, and why is it there? I think the best person to answer this question would be Bronx borough historian and professor Lloyd Olten. In uh, 1912, the coat of arms and the flag in which the coat of arms appears were first adopted by the Borough of the Bronx. It was decided that there ought to be a proper motto. And in those days, uh, the important thing was to have words in Latin. Latin was considered to be, you know, upper crust uh, type of thing. And to su find a suitable motto, they chose the words ne se de malus, or sometimes pronounced ne que de malus, which means yield not to evil, which is a very perfect kind of motto for a civic institution. And now you know.
While walking through Van Cortlandt House on a self-guided tour that you'll take, consider that there would be no house were it not for the labor of enslaved people. While Frederick Van Cortlandt is credited as the builder of the house, or having built the house, it is more accurate to say that he had the house built. In 1748, Frederick and his family were already living somewhere else on the plantation, although the exact location is not known. He would have taken an active role in designing the house and overseeing the construction, but it is most unlikely that Frederick, at nearly 50 years of age, was not moving field stones or hewing timbers as his house was being built. Even after the family moved into the house sometime after 1750, they would have relied on the work of enslaved people for cooking, cleaning, laundry, and other aspects of daily life, such as bringing water in and out of the house and keeping fireplaces supplied with wood and clear of ashes. The work of keeping the house warm alone took a tremendous amount of labor. A household in a northern colony like New York used an average of 35 cords of wood per year. For some perspective, a cord of wood is a neatly stacked pile measuring 8 feet long by 4 feet high and 4 feet wide. The more fireplaces in a house, the more firewood was needed. Van Cortlandt House had above the average number of fireplaces, with seven exclusively for heating and at least one more for cooking and possibly another dedicated to heating water for laundry. Leave it to those Van Cortlands to be extra, even in the 18th century. This number of fireplaces could easily have doubled the family's consumption of wood to 70 cords per year. Every piece of firewood started as a tree that had to be felled, cut into manageable pieces, stacked to dry, moved closer to the house, and then brought into the house. This one task is representative of the many tasks that would have been performed by enslaved people day in and day out at Van Cortlandt House. So for today's episode, Laura, let's, let's focus on the recently opened slave quarters in the museum. Uh, these attic rooms were studied by Dr. Bernard Herman of the University of Delaware during his examination and analysis of the house in February of 1994. The L attic offers some of the most interesting insights into the social history of Van Cortlandt House. The unheated garret rooms with their board walls and original doors are built using wrought nails, a sign of mid-18th century construction. The plan of the north attic and the size of the individual rooms supports the idea that this space provided quarters for household servants. The practice of housing servants in unheated rooms tucked away in garrets is well documented in 18th and 19th century houses throughout the region of the middle colonies, including New York. The presence of such rooms in the Van Cortlandt house is significant, not only for what they tell us about historic living conditions and differing lifestyles under a single roof, but also for their remarkable state of preservation. The room that has been interpreted as slave quarters, as identified by Dr. Herman, is adjacent to the back or service stairs from the second to attic floors in the dining room wing. The room is sparse with no decorative finishes, no heat, and no light other than what comes through the door when it is open. There are two sets of broad shelves along the north and south walls, which were most likely used as sleeping bunks. A third, narrower shelf along the north wall may have been used by the occupants of the room for storing a few personal items. The beds are made with linen-ticking mattresses stuffed with paper to simulate corn husks, a single coarse linen sheet, and a single wool blanket. 
Personal possessions include a matter red and indigo blue woolen rommel neckerchief that would have been used either as a head wrap or folded into a triangle and worn over the shoulders to cover the bosom. There's also a small strand of chevron glass African trade beads. A bunch of dried lavender has also been hung in the room as insect repellent and to help freshen the air of the windowless room. We don't know which of the enslaved people owned by the Van Cortlandt family would have used this room as their sleeping quarters. It can probably be assumed that it was used by enslaved females working in the house, although not the cook. It was most common for the cook to have slept in the kitchen, which was originally in a separate building, more or less where the caretaker's cottage and welcome center is located today. So Laura, when people come to visit the Van Cortlandt House Museum, can they see those slave quarters? Yes. Part of interpreting the slave quarters and furnishing them with some very simple material objects like the bedding and the personal objects, the purpose of that was to be able to invite our guests to see this room, which is until now has not been seen probably since it was lived in by the enslaved people or used as storage room by the Van Cortlandt family because they did live in the house until the 1880s. So yes, our visitors now as part of their their self-guided tour, which we are doing self-guided tours, can go into that space and really feel the sense of the differences between the elegant rooms downstairs, the beautiful bedchambers, and this very simple, sparse living quarters. Well, I'm really happy that you took the time to do all this research and, and to make this available uh, to visitors uh, to come and see and experience. Thank you so much, Laura, for being our guest co-host today. This has certainly been both educational and enlightening. You can find more about this project by visiting vchm.org. Well, that's our show this week. Thank all of you for tuning in to our Go Bronx pod produced by the Bronx Tourism Council and made possible by Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company, and with support from NYC and Company. Mucho thanks to the historic Van Cortlandt House Museum and the National Society of Colonial Dames in the state of New York for letting us record this episode here today. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GoBXPod. If you like us, tell your friends. And if they already like us, make some new friends and then tell them. For information about this episode and more, visit GoBronxPod.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our e-newsletter to get the latest and greatest news from and about the Bronx. For today, I'm Olga Luce. And I'm Laura. Bronx for Lee yours.